Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King. Adam Silverstein here to lead you through these hard times with the Wednesday night wrestling edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to break down every single thing that happened on NXT and AEW Dynamite this week. And folks, we have plenty to talk about on today's show. You know, coming out of last week's Wednesday night wrestling programs, there was, some would say, a paradigm shift a little bit. NXT had won multiple weeks in a row. AEW clawed its way back two weeks ago. But last week, AEW absolutely bludgeoned NXT in the ratings in particular, but also in terms of show quality, AEW last week put on one of the best episodes of Dynamite we have seen all year and certainly during the pandemic era. The question, of course, was, will they follow up on it? Because after all, we're in a ratings war, ladies and gentlemen. And the answer to that is no. This week's edition of AEW Dynamite may have been, I don't want to necessarily use the word the worst, but it may have been the most disappointing episode of the show that I can remember most certainly over the last few months. Meanwhile, did NXT kind of turn things back? Yes and no. NXT still has some issues of its own. We are going to break down all of that coming up for you shortly. Before we get to it, of course, we need you to do us a couple favors. First, follow this show on Twitter. You can follow us at Getting Over cast. Of course, if you want to follow me personally, you can hit up at Silverstein Adam. Also, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Do us a favor, drop a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Let us know why you love the show so much. We have 250 reviews already in just a couple of months. This is the 55th episode of this podcast. Absolutely insane to do this much wrestling audio in such a short period of time, but absolutely none of it would happen. None of it would have would have happened without all of you wanting the show to exist and helping us along the journey. Hell, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you guys to contribute a very, you know, relatively minute amount of money for production costs and for equipment, technical reasons. You guys absolutely blew that out of the water. I am Closing in on deciding which technology to buy, which new equipment, it should be arriving sooner than later. And I hope if anyone has any issues with audio quality or they want better sound drops, whatever the case might be, I hope all of those issues are quelled in the very near future. But that is enough office work to do. Uh, As we get into today's show, we are going to talk NXT and AEW Dynamite. And I probably gave it away a little bit in the intro, but this week, We are going to start with NXT, which I felt for two hours was top to bottom a better show than AEW Dynamite. Dynamite did have a really strong 30-minute finish, but as I will talk about later on today's show, and by the way, you can always check our episode descriptions for timestamps so you'll know when we talk NXT and when we talk AEW, Um, but if you, you'll hear it later in today's show, the first 90 minutes of Dynamite were just as disappointing to me as the first hour of Raw on Monday night. Coming out of Raw, I said to you know Chris Vanini, our, our WWE co-host on this podcast, and I said to myself, 
There is no way an episode of TV is going to be worse than what Raw was on Monday. And look, we are being honest. We're always honest on the show. If it wasn't for that last half hour, AEW would have been right there with Raw in terms of just nonsensical booking, bad matches, just disastrous type of storytelling. Really not good. I will break down all of that later. But it is because of that, and not necessarily because NXT was spectacular in any particular way, but it was solid for two hours straight. It is for those reasons that we are going to start today with NXT. And I actually want to begin with something that happened outside of the confines of Full Sail University, and that was former NXT champion and undisputed era leader Adam Cole getting into it in a major way on the radio with Pat McAfee. Now, I was going to air some audio clips from it, but you know, giving you a couple minutes or just Cole's angered reaction doesn't really do it justice. You can head over to WWE's YouTube channel. You can head over to the Pat McAfee Show uh, YouTube channel or social media page, Twitter, and kind of see some of what went down between these two. But long story short, to break it down for everyone, Cole and McAfee on air have had a bit of a beef with basically McAfee calling him too small, getting you know, kayfabe angry at Cole's heel antics. And this has gone on, you know, maybe for the better part of a year, but definitely for multiple months. And what happened was McAfee had uh, Cole on his show in what they presented as a regular interview segment. But instead, it was a total kayfabe situation. And we're going to break down what happened and why it happened. But, um, you know, McAfee basically insulted Cole in a couple of ways, also intimating that, him being small in stature, you know, made it time for kind of NXT to move in a different direction in the main event picture. Cole got upset. I think he threw a mic, got up into McAfee's face. One of uh, the show producers kind of got there. Cole pushed him and then Cole walked out. And ultimately he wrote an apology on Twitter uh, to kind of say, you know, my actions were not justified. And then Triple H went on the show a couple days later to kind of break everything down. But the way this was done, is everything that is right with professional wrestling. It made fans both of NXT and just people who listen to Pat's radio show or online show. I'm not exactly sure what it is because I am not a listener. Uh, But it made them question whether what was happening was legitimate or kayfabe. It gave NXT exposure on a popular show with an audience that directly hits the demographic. It is hurting to lure right now and it is losing badly to AEW. So Cole and McAfee both did a fantastic job working in the moment, particularly Cole, who came across as completely genuine. They also did a really good job allowing the fallout to sit and marinate with people for a couple days before Triple H eventually went on the show and tried to smooth things over. The back and forth with McAfee was not as good with Triple H, but it still got the job done in promoting that there was a future to this story. Hopefully, for fans, any question as to whether this was real or kayfabe was cleared up by the fact that they aired an entire recap segment of the back and forth on TV Wednesday night, and they also posted it to social media. And by they, I mean WWE in this case. They're not going to show one of their performers looking bad on a national outlet, let's say, or even a a specialized type of media outlet. They're not going to put that on their air unless there's a benefit to them. And in this case, the benefit is storytelling. So the intimation here is that uh, McAfee is going to show up on NXT, you know, it seems, to bury the hatchet with Cole, presumably resulting in a brawl. And I completely expect there to be a match at NXT TakeOver Triple X, I guess we'll call it 30, 
they're also not wanting to book Cole in anything that's meaningful in terms of with NXT talent right now, because now that he's lost the title, the next thing he needs to do is win. And I personally think the idea is that he and Undisputed Era are going to be finishing up their NXT tenure at TakeOver and will head over to the main roster as soon as the next night at SummerSlam. And we got a lot of little tastes and little hints that that might be the case on NXT Wednesday night, which is why we're starting with this topic. We had the Johnny Gargano versus Roderick Strong match that Gargano won pretty clean. I probably would have opened the show at this match or at least held it another segment until the 9 p.m. hour. This was a takeover caliber match in terms of the competitors and the potential. But for it to be thrown into the show's second segment with hardly any promotion, they didn't promote it for an entire week. I think they maybe gave it 24 hours. That was another poor decision, poor planning on NXT's part, and just not great booking. Maybe they put it in the second segment spot because it was heel versus heel. I could see that as a possibility. It ended up being a good battle and a lesson, uh, a tape that could be reviewed for any up-and-coming wrestlers about how to run a match, but I felt it never really got out of the third gear. It was clear to me, at least, that these guys were not going full throttle the way they would in front of a major crowd or in front of a takeover audience. And the finish came relatively quickly for what I thought would be a longer match between these two. It was also more definitive than I expected with Gargano hitting the final beat. That also leads me to believe, again, that Undisputed will be gone after TakeOver Triple X, and we'll talk about that more in a second. Later in the show, you had Imperium, who are the NXT Tag Team Champions, defeat Everrise in a non-title match. And I've said my piece about the NXT Tag Team Division too many times on here, so I'm not going to repeat it. But what else do you need to know that Everrise has had matches two weeks in a row? Basically squash matches two weeks in a row. Stop trying to make Everrise happen. It's not going to happen. Obviously, what mattered here was Undisputed Era running through Imperium after the match. Now, all of a sudden, there's a title match next week, which I'm okay with in some respects because Undisputed Era are the two-time champions and they kind of deserve the opportunity and the benefit of the doubt that when they want to get back into the tag team scene and there's no one else around that's a top challenger, they get that opportunity. And the fact that they attacked Imperium four on two, it, it kind of speaks to the fact that okay, yeah, they're, they're going after the titles and they're trying to make a statement and Imperium, in order to get a match with them, needs to put the titles on the line. But what's a little disappointing to me here is I thought this was just setting up a takeover match. And I'm not sure that they actually had to run this immediately next week when they clearly won't, or at least I don't think we'll be able to develop anything else from a tag team perspective for that show. So there's a very good chance that because this match is happening next week, we don't have a tag team title match at TakeOver 30. They might be able to surprise me. Maybe they'll do another Fatal 4-Way or something like that. I don't know. But this is just another indication to me that NXT is trying to book Undisputed Era out of the show. Roderick Strong, he lost to Gargano clean. He's not. He just lost that triple threat match for a spot, I believe it was, in the North American Championship uh, ladder match at TakeOver. So he's now a multi-time loser in a row. He's also been losing a lot on NXT, Um, but he's out of any picture. If you have Undisputed Era lose this tag team title match next Wednesday, they're now out of the tag team title picture. And then Adam Cole, who's already feuded with basically all the top guys and just lost his title after about 400 days to Keith Lee, 
if you have him fight Pat McAfee on TakeOver 30, then where is he going to go from there? So the answer to me is nowhere. He wins that match, obviously, because, I mean, you couldn't have him lose. And despite Lou having just lost the title, he and the Undisputed Era ride that heel momentum onto the main roster. Now, look, by the time all is said and done, I may be proven 100% wrong. They have a match or they don't have a match with McAfee, whatever whatever happens. Um, and then the next Wednesday, they, they don't show up Sunday at SummerSlam. They don't show up Monday at Raw. The next Wednesday, they're back on NXT. So, okay, that's certainly possible. But if it's me, you've kind of written Di- Dijakovic out. You've written Undisputed Era out. Or you have the opportunity to write Undisputed Era out. I put all five of them together. I debut them at SummerSlam after Drew McIntyre defends his title against Randy Orton, let's say, theoretically. Uh, McIntyre defends, and you have those guys attack McIntyre immediately at in the main event segment of SummerSlam. You get them over as ma- massive heels. You put a real faction on the main roster. Five dudes really strong. You now have them. You have the Hurt Business. You grow that a little bit. You put together a face faction, and all of a sudden, Raw is really freaking interesting again. Again, fantasy booking, booking the damn territory. But whether all that stuff happens, whether a small amount of that stuff happens, to me, it does feel like Undisputed Era is being written off the NXT program. So that was the main topic coming out of NXT, but plenty else happened. So we are going to run through that right now. You opened the show with Io Shirai and Tegan Knox defeating Dakota Kai and Candice LeRae in a tag match. And there wasn't really much to write home about in the opening. The beginning of the show felt really low energy, despite the entire point of the pre-match attack being to peak interest as soon as the show began. It was strange that they're brawling out of hatred. Then they get into the squared circle, the bell rings, and the first thing we do is see like an energy muting feat of strength. I think it was between Candice LeRae and Tegan Knox. It's like, why are you, you guys were just brawling with each other and now everything's calm and you're going to start a match calmly. Very, very strange how that was done. I'm not sure why this match was necessary, nor why a face team victory was necessary when you're building to a women's title match, a takeover, a singles match, presumably between Dakota Kai and Io Shirai. But this has no storyline at this time other than the blindside attack last week. And I thought it kind of needed one that they maybe could have done in a talking segment or just done something different than a match that the faces won. So it gives Kai even less reason to have that opportunity. I did, by the way, like Io Shirai's tribute to Kairi Sane. Uh, she saluted while on the top rope. I thought that was pretty cool. So in this segment, we didn't get Raquel Gonzalez either here or backstage later in the show, which is certainly strange considering how great they've been together. Hopefully it's not a coronavirus or personal absence, but it really doesn't make any sense why she wouldn't be there if it wasn't one of those two, because Raquel and and Dakota Kai were working great together. Later in the show, having Kai and Rhea Ripley go face-to-face backstage, that was a good decision, though Ripley has been cooled off so much by booking since winning the NXT title and then obviously losing it uh, at WrestleMania that it's going to hurt to see her lose a number one contendership to Dakota Kai. Even if Raquel Gonzalez gets involved, the fact that Rhea Ripley was on top of the world in NXT as women's champion and is now just another woman there, it's with a very short title reign, all things considered. I mean, I think it was four months, if if memory serves, the, the go-home moment for the last NXT of 2019 was her winning the title. 
And then she did hold it, I guess, until WrestleMania. But it didn't feel like a long title reign. It didn't really feel like she had a lot of defenses. Or if she did, it wasn't against a large variety of opponents. So this woman who's, you know, maybe the best in the entire brand, you know, Io Shirai certainly holds that mantle. But Rhea Ripley, in terms of long-term ceiling in WWE, has a higher ceiling. She's been cooled off to such a degree that now you're possibly going to have her lose a number one contendership match on top of losing the title, on top of everything else that's happened with her recently. So I want to see better for Rhea Ripley. Um, a great interview, by the way, that we had on this podcast. Go back and in the archives and listen to that. She was awesome. Sticking with the women, we had Mercedes Martinez defeat Shotzi Blackheart. So Shotzi's been getting pretty good and pretty strong booking to this point. Because of that, it was a bit surprising to see Martinez be so dominant and beat her so decisively in this match. But she did get put over big here. And I think the entire point was to make Martinez look like a monster. The question is, could they not have done that against a Caden Carter, a Casey Cantanazaro, or someone else who they could have used as she worked her way up to Shotzi Blackheart? That's probably what I would have done. But nevertheless, Martinez got put over big. The released German suplex off the top rope, I think it's called a spider suplex, was freaking awesome. Her spine buster was picture perfect. Arn Anderson would have been proud of that. The air raid crash finisher is really damn good. She's like the third person in NXT now to use the air raid, I think along with Io Shirai and Tommaso Ciampa. So it was a good, a way better match and way better showcase of Martinez than the first one that I criticized a week ago. And honestly, considering I did criticize that match, maybe that's exactly the reason they didn't have her go with someone like Casey. But Caden Carter could have done a really good job in this spot. Shotzi, it just felt to me, was booked, has been booked a bit too strong to get beaten that easily, even if it is a veteran uh, and a badass in Martinez. I also like that we saw Robert Stone and Aaliyah in this segment, but they were very much in the background. They didn't make you know jokes out of stuff because Martinez, when she's wrestling, she's not a joke. They may be jokes, but she's not. So I love the idea of them being there to manage her, but really not getting on the mic, not propping her up, um, not causing any chaos. It was a really smart booking decision to do that. And I those are the little things that NXT does right. Up next, we had Keith Lee responding to Karrion Cross. I thought that was a really strong promo from Lee here on Cross, calling him out basically for playing mind games rather than facing him in the ring like a man. The Cameron Grimes part to me was totally unnecessary and added nothing to the segment considering Cross answered him almost immediately on the Titantron. So Grimes getting in there and just kind of getting thrown around and getting his ass kicked, it was just like worthless. And I guess theoretically they could have a Cross-Grimes match next week, non-title I would hope, and Lee can kick his ass again. But now you have Cameron Grimes, a guy that should be in this tournament for the North American Championship. And every single time he wrestles, with the exception of once, he loses to guys much bigger than him. So it just, again, it seemed unnecessary to put him specifically in this spot. Scarlet looked great as always. That's the most action I've had all year. Not just in that sense, but introducing uh, Karrion Cross. Cross's promo was equally strong back at Lee and Lee promising to whoop that ass uh, as long as Cross chose a time and place was a great close to the promo segment. Both of these guys felt like main roster, main eventers. We all loved the Gargano, Champa, Cole era atop NXT. But if I'm being totally honest, it feels good to have some big meaty men slapping meat again back to the top 
of the NXT title picture. Put your meat on my meat, man. Gently now. Please, gently, gently. I'm delicate. I also loved that William Regal, the general manager, didn't let their rivalry get the best of due process, commanding that he's the one who makes championship matches and challengers have to earn opportunities. It's the exact opposite in many respects of what Raw, SmackDown, and AEW basically do every week. And I'll even include AEW, especially recently in the pandemic era, where Brody Lee shows up, gets a title match. Brian Cage, yes, Cage earned it. But Brian Cage shows up, gets a title match. Darby Allen now all of a sudden has a title match. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But in this particular situation, I love that Regal stepped in and said, guys, I get it, there's animosity here, but we earn title matches in NXT. And Cross basically is 2-0 and or 3-0 and or something like that. So he doesn't just get a title match out of thin air. So I really, really, really like that. It's a little bit contradictory to the fact that Imperium and Undisputed Era brawled and then all of a sudden Undisputed Era got a title match. But at least in that case, in kayfabe again, these are multi-time champions. They are deserving of a title match really at any time. Cross has only been there for a couple months. He's a new superstar. He's only wrestled a couple of times. Really like that from William Regal. Really good booking touch by NXT and Triple H. We also got two awesome vignettes during the show for Bronson Reed and Ridge Holland. This comes on the heels of getting another awesome vignette. I believe it was last week for Isaiah Swerve Scott. So you guys remember, I was really critical of the Shotzi Blackheart vignette about a month, two months ago. The last three that we've gotten, fantastic. Reed has been on TV a good bit over the last few months. But now we finally get a sense of who he is and what he's about. I always enjoy a big guy debuting as a face, and he totally pulls it off. Now, when you go over to Holland, uh, he came off super cool in his spot, and I'm curious to see what he brings to the table. He is a guy, he's from England, and he's a relative unknown who's only been wrestling since 2016 as a former rugby player. He's had three total matches in NXT, one in America, two with NXT UK, and they're basically repackaging, repackaging him and debuting him in a North American title triple threat qualifying match. So that's a pretty big promotion when you have a lot of other big names on the show. So next week, we have Damian Priest versus Oni Lorcan versus Ridge Holland out of nowhere. I'm going to assume Priest will win, but I don't really get the booking considering all the talent that they have that is currently not being used. Holland gets this opportunity with zero experience. Lorcan just lost two straight singles matches to Timothy Thatcher. Why is he in this? There will still be two more matches. So there's six more NXT talents who will get to compete, one would think. But sorry, there's there's two more triple threat matches. And then my thought is as well, there will be like a gauntlet or a last chance match coming out of that. It looks like there will be two more triple threat matches on the back end of this. Presumably, both of them are triple threat matches. I guess they could throw a swerve and do another multi-man match or a gauntlet match or something. But the my expectation, at least, is there's going to be six more talents that they will get to use. But there's a lot more than six people that kind of deserve opportunities to qualify for this North American ladder match at TakeOver. I mean, where's Kushida? Like, Kushida should definitely be in that match or at least involved in the qualifying. Just mentioned Cameron Grimes earlier. That's another guy that needs to be involved here. So there may be six spaces left, but I am starting to feel like they're kind of running out of opportunities to feature people who should be featured. So it's tough for me to have Holland in here, and even more so than Holland, to have Oni Lorcan in this match. 
when you have plenty other guys available and pretty deserving of opportunities here. Moving on though, I did mention Isaiah Swerve Scott. He defeated Jake Atlas. I thought this was another really good opportunity to feature Swerve. I gotta say, I kind of hate that they're going with three names with him. I assume it's for trademark reasons, but it's rough to every single time Morrow says his name, say Isaiah Swerve Scott. It's not a natural in any way. Call him Swerve Scott. Call him Swerve. I know Swerve is the name he went with on the indies. Maybe there's a reason why they're not specifically calling him that. Man, just call him Swerve. Like, do what you can, make it work, or at least shorten it. This is a very rare scenario in WWE where I need a name shortened, (laughs) not lengthened. So please go ahead and do that. Nevertheless, a really exciting cruiserweight match with Swerve hitting that cool, like, reverse zigzag facebuster kind of move. And then we had Atlas nail that absurd avalanche Murphy's Law, let's call it. Absolutely sick move. Swerve won the match, of course, with the JML driver. I say it all the time. I am so excited for this guy's future. Swerve is going to be a star on NXT and a star in WWE, not cruiserweight. Top level mid-carter, low level main eventer. This guy has a very very high ceiling. Atlas, I don't really know what's up with like the magician's jacket that he wears to the ring. That's a little strange. In terms of his matches, he's good and technically proficient in the ring. So I like him and I think he's only going to get better as he gets more experience. But it's he's a very strange wrestler to me because every single match, he does like two specific moves that pop me huge. In this case, it was the avalanche... Um, Murphy's Law, Angle Slam, I don't know exactly what you want to call it. But in this match, it was that move. In prior matches, he's done like a tightrope cartwheel hurricanrana or tornado DDT or stuff like that. This guy just has an incredible, ridiculous moveset, but he still doesn't feel like he's a complete wrestler. It, it, it feels like almost he needs another year or two of seasoning before he's really ready to compete with guys the likes of Swerve, Santos Escobar, etc. So look, maybe I'm downplaying him a little bit. I just don't think I am. There's Every time I see him in the ring, it just seems a little bit slower and more mechanical than it should be with someone that has the athleticism and talent that he clearly does. I'm excited for his long-term future, but I do feel like some criticism was legitimate in that case. The main event of the show was the triple threat qualifying match for the North American Championship ladder match at TakeOver 30, and we had Dexter Loomis Dexter Loomis defeat Finn Balor and Timothy Thatcher. I enjoyed Loomis stalking his competitors during the backstage check-in type segments earlier in the show. I hated though that this was a 14-minute match with a long commercial break. I also hated that Loomis did a crazy like tope cannonball similar to the one that Ricochet did in NXT by the way out of the ring onto the ramp and the director totally missed the shot. This was a taped episode of NXT and they were still not able to get the shot. So maybe he flubbed it in real time and they did him a favor with the cut, but it didn't look like it. It looked like he actually landed it. So I just cannot believe a guy that size was able to do that and they didn't actually show it on television. The crowd also hurt this match. It spent the entire time just banging on the glass rather than reacting to the moves. And the moves in this match were really good. It was a really good old school type of bout with a catch wrestler in Thatcher, a bigger guy in Loomis and Balor trying to be almost the intermediary between the two. It wasn't necessarily much to write home about in terms of what happened during those 14 minutes, 
But the finish I absolutely loved with Balor kind of cinched in the leg lock and Loomis taking advantage of a prone Thatcher with his chokeout finisher. I don't think it has a name, but they need to give it one. Uh, it's, it's a good finisher for him. I like it a lot. It's really good booking to have Balor basically incapacitated and not only unable to factor into the finish, but not even know it was happening. Very smart and not something I've really seen, or at least not something I remember seeing previously. The other takeaway coming out of NXT is I have been begging them, and you guys know, long-term listeners, I've been begging them to announce their cards ahead of time. So you know I'm excited that before the show ended, we already have three huge matches, a title match, a number one contendership, and another North American qualifying match, a full week out to promote next week's edition of NXT. And all of that is going down without them promoting any stuff, including some of their bigger names. Keith Lee, Karrion Cross, Adam Cole, none of that has been announced for next week. Yet, we still have three really big matches with stuff that fans should be interested in. So I thought NXT just gave us a really solid two-hour show, a step up from last week, no question about it. But what I'm even more excited about is that they're promoting ahead a full seven days or six days, I guess, to next week's show and saying, hey, you need to tune in next week. We have a loaded card for you and we're gonna we're gonna pay off. We're gonna pay off you guys waiting a full week because we're gonna give you a title match, a number one contendership, and a qualifying match where someone's gonna get that entry into the TakeOver 30 ladder match for the North American Championship. That is exactly what NXT needs to do more of. The question now is they have plenty of stuff to promote. Are they gonna promote it? Will we see enhanced promotion on Raw? And by the way, I actually think the promotion has been better on Raw as of late. Will USA Network be promoting it? What else is WWE gonna do to make sure NXT gets out there and gets people to watch next Wednesday's show? That is ultimately the key. But as I said, really solid two hours from NXT. And coming out of last week where I loved Dynamite, loved Dynamite last week, I cannot tell you how disappointed I was in this week's episode. I always watch NXT first because I find AEW to be an easier show to fast forward, meaning the commercial breaks in particular. I also love that I got NXT, it's really wrestling heavy, and then I turned to AEW, and I've said this before, they are kind of closer to the WWE product. They're more of an alternative to WWE than they are akin to NXT. NXT and AEW, to me always, are very different shows. So I like that I get like the hardcore wrestling fan in me out in NXT, and then I can go sit and be entertained for about 90 minutes, you know, without commercials, watching AEW. But this week... Zero point zero. And that's not to say there were, it was completely bad. There, the last 30 minutes of AEW was very good. But the first 90 minutes of this show really, really turned me off. First of all, it was as low energy as could be. And the commentary, not having Excalibur there and having Taz sit in, took a major dive in quality. I have not been critical of JR to this point in terms of his commentary. Yes, it's rough. He's older. He's losing some of the charm and ability that once made him the best announcer in professional wrestling. But with Tony Schiavone and Excalibur there, he really got into a groove and I thought he added a ton to the broadcast. Without Excalibur and with Taz there, JR just 
felt like a grumpy old man. And I thought he was extremely rough the entire episode. And when you're going to go ahead and say something like this last week. You know, it's going to sound real uh, ass kissing, but why is there even a choice on Wednesday night? You know, DVR NXT. Watch it later. Our shit's better. And I'm proud to be able to say that. And it's not in defiance, it's just in reality. I don't remember the last time I even watched this show. That's no bullshit. I really don't give a rat's ass about it. I respect the men and women there, you know, that are bumping and working. But I'm not trying to be a homer. I don't give a shit if someone thinks I am. But I just, I'm so locked into what we do. I really don't give a rat's ass. So So if you want to know why there's a choice on Wednesday night, it's because of nights like this past week. If you are going to say something like that, then you better hope that a- that Tony Khan, AEW, whoever's booking, and the wrestlers deliver for you the following week. There was no worse follow-up to those comments from JR and Taz on that AEW post-show or whatever it was last week than the show that AEW actually gave us on Wednesday night. That's the reason why people watch NXT, or at least why some of them do, why they feel like they want to watch this other product. It's because, hey, not every show is great every single week. Yes, AEW can feel itself anytime it wants. Last week, it deserved to feel like it was on top of the world. That AEW Dynamite last week was the best show of Raw, SmackDown, NXT, or obviously their own show last week. Best wrestling show on television last week. It is not the case every single week. And the show they gave us this Wednesday is a paradigm as to why that's the case. We opened with best friends and Jurassic Express defeating the inner circle. And you all know how much I put over some of these recent multi-man matches in AEW. And on Tuesday's show, on this very podcast, I said this match would be great. But man, this opener was total unabated shit. Everything was completely telegraphed and everyone was just standing around joking and laughing like it was a fill-in match to get people on the card at an independent show. It was so amateurish in terms of pacing, booking, agency. Aubrey Edwards doesn't hear a five-man illegal beatdown in the corner. Tag team rules hardly applied, and I know that we all assume that's going to be the case, but it was once again here. Considering the insane high quality and overachieving nature of the recent six and eight-man tags, this felt slow, meandering, and lacking any shred of excitement by comparison. Then, as if 10 guys is not enough, you have Matt Hardy factor into the finish. Oh, and if a 6, 8, and 10-man tag in consecutive weeks is not enough, now we're getting a 12-man tag team match next week. Do you think I'm excited for that? Zero. No, I am not. This was bad. Horrible opener. Maybe the worst opening segment to an AEW show that I can remember. Shameful. Honestly, shameful. Uh, Now, later in the show, we had that Chris Jericho promo. It was fine. Nothing spectacular. I don't really understand the idea of doing a debate segment with Orange Cassidy, though obviously if anyone can make that good, it's Jericho. Moving on, the second segment of the show, Cody defending the TNT Championship against Warhorse. (sighs) Okay, unlike last week with Eddie Kingston, who I knew, I watched him not just in NWA, but I've watched him on Independence. 
you know, plenty over the course of the last probably five years or so. And I also loved him ahead of time. So I went into last week's Eddie Kingston appearance with a preconceived notion that I would like it. And not only did Eddie Kingston deliver, he delivered over the freaking moon. That was an incredible segment last week. But I went into this match completely blind. I had never heard of Warhorse before. I wanted to give him a completely fair first look evaluation and say, hey, people are making a big deal about this guy. I'm going to see him on AEW and I can't wait to love him. But I got to say, this guy came off like a wrestler cosplaying as a heavy metal version of Ultimate Warrior. He was not a believable challenger for the title whatsoever. And if the Kingston match, you want to give a four out of five, not in terms of stars, but just four out of five thumbs up, let's say, last week, this was a two out of five at best. Maybe the worst TNT title defense to date. An absolutely huge disappointment considering the way they promoted it and the way Cody made a big deal about this match on the show. I don't particularly understand why AEW is doing this thing in terms of the TNT title, where they're bringing independent wrestlers onto the show to challenge for it. They have like 58 or 57 male wrestlers signed to the company right now. Yes, probably 20 of them are completely unavailable because they're overseas for one reason or another, but that still leaves 38 dudes. A, you don't have to have a TNT title match every week. But if you want to, you can give all three members of SCU an opportunity. You can give Santana and Ortiz separately opportunities. You can give Phoenix, Pentagon, the FTR member, whoever, okay? You have so many people deserving of opportunities, not necessarily deserving, but available for storyline purposes where you can develop a storyline and set up a match for the TNT championship and yet they're just bringing these people in one-off to pop ratings. I guess Kingston popped a rating because a lot of independent people liked him. I, I can't imagine Warhorse did. And if he did, a lot of people were disappointed tuning in. But man, give me a week of storyline build and then give me a TNT title match the following week. Have Cody stand in the ring and do an open challenge and have someone come out, whoever it is. It can be Scorpio Sky, I don't care. Come out and accept the challenge and have a match. You know, just saying, okay, this, this week Sonny Kiss is going to do it. This week Mark Quentin's going to do it. This week Warhorse Independent Wrestler is going to do it. it. The TNT title doesn't feel like it means anything to me. Why are people who are unknown, not on the roster, or very low on the card, the only ones who are getting TNT title matches? It just, it, 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 they're booking this wrong. And I don't exactly know why. Maybe it's purposeful and Cody's going to start getting chastised for not taking on major opponents. And maybe that's part of the heel turn. He's being a coward. I don't think so. I just think it's bad booking. So that's going to be the criticism for right now. So after the match, we have two random unknown members of Dark Order attack Cody, seemingly for no storyline reason. Just so Matt Cardona, formerly known as Zack Ryder, of course, could debut. Cardona looked huge here. And he must have had that spray tan on max setting. I'm not trying to be a downer necessarily, but his debut didn't pop me at all. And it really should have. Commentary did a horrible job on the show. And especially in this moment, it didn't feel like a big deal. Obviously he hit the Rough Rider, but they didn't know what to call it because they weren't going to call it the Rough Rider. So it just, it seemed like there was no preparation. It almost seemed like Cardona actually surprised commentary and showed up and no one knew that he was going to be there, which in wrestling should not be the case. So that was really the first like, 45 minutes of the show, did not like an ounce of it. But then they gave us the FTR 
contract signing with AEW. And this is exactly what I was talking about on Tuesday's show this week with AEW and WWE in particular, that's what I talked about Tuesday, using their facilities to their fullest extent. It was great to see a contract signing in a boardroom. I like the idea of having contractual tag ropes for the FTR matches, as well as a tag team appreciation night on August 12th. AEW's strength right now is their tag team division. And I know they've already announced the Jericho Orange Cassidy match for two weeks from now. I kind of wish that was a tag team match and they gave us an entire show of tag team wrestling. That would be awesome. They could absolutely kill it. And I bet you they could beat NXT head to head running only tag team matches. But it just seems like it's gonna be uh, more of a gimmick, maybe with one or two matches rather than an entire two hours of tag team wrestling. Nevertheless, I like the idea of that. I like the tag ropes. AEW's building multiple shows in advance. And as a fan, I appreciate that. I liked Hangman Page kind of coming in there, toasting them and continuing the storyline. If memory serves, and I'm forgetting right now, I sh- it should have been something I got looked back at. Was he in his wrestling gear while everyone else was in regular clothes? I don't know if that's the case, but if so, that would be very funny that that would be the case. As far as Arn Anderson being there with FTR, it's one of two things at this point. They're either blatantly telegraphing this four horsemen stable, or they just continued to do a great job swerving it. I hope it's the latter, but I suspect it's the former. Uh, we also had a tag team title match, Kenny Omega and Hangman Page defending and defeating Dark Order. I did like the wrestling in this match. It was very good. And Stu Grayson and Evil Uno really surprised me. I know that people that long-term they are good wrestlers on the independent scene, but in AEW, I never understood what the fuss was about with them signing with the company. Now I get it. It felt like it was unnecessarily made a title match though, because there was never a thought that Dark Order was gonna win. And I don't really feel like they did much to earn it. Also, if I've said it once, I've said this a thousand times, this is a total loser faction. They do nothing but lose. So why am I supposed to care at all about the Dark Order? Because now there's a woman in like an eyes wide shut mask there, Ali J, or because Brody Lee keeps teasing that they're gonna add someone, unless they're adding Rusev, which I don't think they're going to, <laughs> then I, I don't see what they could do to really make me care about the Dark Order. After the match, Brody Lee cut what I think was a horrible promo. I saw people liked it. I didn't. A, bu- a bunch of masked Dark Order minions attack the elite for 10 seconds maybe before FTR comes out and saves them. It reminded me of the last segment on Dynamite to end 2019 that people hated so much, except this was even worse because there was no pacing, no energy, and the Dark Order wasn't even given 30 or 45 seconds to get over on the Elite and show their strength in numbers. If you're gonna talk about having strength in numbers, you can't start punching someone for five seconds and then the FTR FTR running down alone clears the ring completely and allows the Elite to stand strong. So I just felt the booking here was a total mess. And again, a, a large part of, and I'll, you know, I'll include one more match here, why the first 90 minutes of Dynamite were such a huge disappointment. Yet Hikaru Shida, the women's champion, beat uh, Diamante in a non-title match. As I said last week, I have no idea why she got to face the top woman in the company just because she beat another independent wrestler on TV. Diamante has a losing record. She had a losing record. I think she was two and three going into this match. Yet she gets to fight Shida. It was a fine showing for Shida. Another example of women though being reduced to a single segment or match in front of the cameras in the ring, basically, 
each week. Again, you saw it this week. Britt Baker spoke for 30 seconds. They had the 30-second thing backstage with Nyla Rose. But the only thing of significance on camera was Hikaru Shida and Diamante. I know their women's division is hurt. I get it. It's decimated. Even before it was decimated, they basically were relegated to one TV segment a week. Disappointing. Uh, They also did an announcement for the Women's Tag Team Cup. A couple things. One, it's a random draw. That concept to me makes it a little bit more interesting and unique. It at least gets me curious about the combinations. The best news really was that this is not going to be on TV, but rather on YouTube each Monday for an hour, I believe 7 to 8 p.m. preceding Raw, which I think is an interesting decision. Then all of a sudden, Funk is on a roll and we see Cameron, the former Funkadactyl, alongside Naomi back in the day, randomly show up as the tag team partner for Nyla Rose. I laughed so hard and it was not meant to be funny. I don't even think she has wrestled since leaving WWE however many years ago. And now she's like a draw or a familiar face that they're gonna have in this match. Look, this women's tag team cup, I already don't watch AEW Dark. I cannot see a way that with this being on YouTube, I will watch a second of this. If something happens, if there's a really good match or a funny segment, yes, I'll go find it and watch it. But putting this on YouTube, I am not gonna go and search this out, not when AEW's women's division is in the state that it is in. So at this point in the show, after this segment, we are now 90 minutes into Dynamite. And the only thing I truly liked was the FTR contract signing. And John Moxley did a good promo earlier in the show. All of that changed in the final 30 minutes though, because NJF came in with a state of the industry address that totally delivered for me. It was probably my favorite segment on Wednesday night across both shows, four hours of TV. MJF was my favorite segment. I loved the way he constantly and consistently blurred the lines between breaking the fourth wall, kayfabe, and the competition that AEW is supposed to be. He called out John Moxley in AEW, spoke a ton of truth about legitimate criticism some have had, but also shared things as he perceives them to be true as a heel. The best heel work is when the heel truly believes that what they think is right and they actually feel wronged by what the other side is doing. Not chicken shit heel stuff, not you know twisting and turning proclamations or statements that are made to fit their needs, but rather actually pointing out injustices or at least perceived injustices and feeling justified somewhat in their takes and in the comments that they're getting across. As opposed to all of the prior WWE references that we've seen on AEW that I've criticized, most of those were direct shots and kind of unnecessary. Here, MJF did an incredible job referring to Moxley coming from the land of the Titans, calling him Dictator John, which I thought was a reference to John Cena, and saying Moxley is cosplaying as one of the best wrestlers ever, aka Stone Cold Steve Austin, I believe MJF said, and that's a Stone Cold fact. That's exactly how you do veiled references because you're calling attention to the past in a legitimate way without trying to unnecessarily shit on it. There's nothing wrong about Stone Cold. There's nothing wrong about WWE being the biggest wrestling organization in the world, but the ability for MJF to take Moxley and say, you're only in this spot because uh, you came in basically with momentum. And the only reason you came in with momentum is because your face is recognizable. You're not even that good. You're just a parody of Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
without saying those exact things, he absolutely nailed it. Now, once MJF got into ratings, Moxley's name value and drawing better numbers, he lost me momentarily. You guys know in terms of promos on AEW, it's just so stupid to talk about ratings like that. But he got me back really quick with the finish to the promo saying AEW needs to be more than an alternative, more than just a revolution, but the pinnacle of professional wrestling and then powerfully challenging Moxley for a match at All Out. Is Moxley MJF a title match I'm looking forward to? Not really, primarily because I don't think MJF is all that good in the ring. He's not bad. He's a great storyteller in the ring, just like he's a great storyteller on the mic. From a wrestling match quality work rate perspective, am I that excited about it? No, but I have a great feeling that between Moxley and MJF and the promos they will be able to cut on the road to All Out, this will end up being a huge match. This guy is 24 years old, a 24-year-old piece of gold. His future is so damn bright. That promo may not have been scripted by writers. It was certainly written out maybe by him. I don't care if it took him two weeks sitting and memorizing that word for word. It did not come off as scripted and he absolutely killed it. Great job all around. MJF has it. Also awesome was the main event match, a tornado tag team match, John Moxley and Darby Allen defeating Brian Cage and Ricky Starks. Really good promo by Moxley early in the show, as I mentioned. And then an even better one from Ricky Starks, seemingly off the cuff, ahead of the match, right by the entrance tunnel, I guess we can call it. The match started great, awesome Darby Allen dive coming off the set to knock out Cage and Starks right at the beginning. The same criticism here with NXT. We got 14 minutes with a long commercial in the middle, but this match didn't need more time because it was so fast-paced and brutal. The tornado rules were perfect here considering the wrestlers that were involved. You guys all know, I think based on AEW's tag team rules, all of their matches should basically be tornado matches, except maybe there's one person who's legal and that's the only person who can take the fall. I don't even know what the case is. But, But in this case, the tornado rules were perfect. The thumbtack skateboard double stomp off the top rope by Darby Allen was a spectacular, brutal, hardcore finish. Starks really took that hard and he sold it in an incredible way, yelling and twitching during the one, two, three. It looked like he had a spine of piercings coming out of his back. They were all completely dug in that it almost like looked like there was an indentation in his back that, was, that were rounded pieces of metal. It was a crazy spot. Kudos to him for taking it. The blood there was totally fine because again, they didn't bleed all match. So the fact that you got that for the finish and the cameras caught it, really good production work as well. While I loved the match and I loved the finish to the match, immediately booking John Moxley versus Darby Allen for the title next week with no storyline reason whatsoever made me shake my head. Not only did Darby just return after being totally out of action for the better part of two months, I think it was, he's the number five challenger to the title. So why are you rushing this match? Why would you not just do a segment next week where you have these two guys jaw at each other or maybe get in an argument, maybe they tag again, whatever the case might be, and there's a challenge made 
And then clearly on August 12th, they're doing a super show. They're running back Chris Jericho and Orange Cassidy. They're doing this special tag team appreciation night. All of a sudden you have a main event of John Moxley versus Darby Allen for the AEW title. This felt totally rushed. In fact, we're going to come out of the AEW segment and slide into the DMs because the first DM I have is about it. And it's from BH at bhabibi44. He wants to know my thoughts on hotshotting Darby Mox. Uh, wouldn't have made more sense to set up Darby MJF with the winner MJF getting Mox at all out. So I don't think it was necessary to go in a number one contendership situation because MJF has the diamond ring thing. He's undefeated and he's atop the standings. So in kayfabe, he deserves a title shot. I don't know what people are waiting or you know what in kayfabe they're waiting for to give him that opportunity. So no, MJF is deserving of the title shot at all out. They don't need to do anything else in that regard. But yes, it would have been nice for Darby to kind of earn this match or give us a storyline in which it makes sense to book this match so quickly. I mean, literally, the bell rang, they announced the winner, and then JR is on screen screaming that Tony Khan just confirmed they're going to fight for the title next week. Why? So yeah, that's a downer. And again, I'm praising William Regal and NXT for their decision-making and not immediately booking Keith Lee versus Karrion Cross, even though we know it's going to end up there. This is the exact opposite of that. And it lends to my point of Randy Orton. I want a title match. Drew McIntyre, okay. <laughs> you know, same thing that happens on Raw. I, I want a little bit more storyline here. I don't necessarily need an authority figure approving every match on screen, but there does need to be some justification or motivation for these champions to accept the title matches or at least be informed of them. Like Dar- uh, you have Darby Allen and John Moxley standing face-to-face in the ring as future opponents, but there's no way they could have known that because the only announcement came from commentary and it was just decided in the moment according to AEW kayfabe. So look, you guys may think I'm being nitpicky here, but AEW promised us a revolution. They promised us better writing or, or sorry, they promised us really no writing, <laughs> but they, they promised more cohesive storylines that make sense in our long-term. And a lot of that they're delivering. But every single step in the right direction they take in regards like that, they take back when they give Warhorse or randomly, you know, Sonny Kiss or uh, Darby Allen title shots out of nowhere. So let's be more consistent and let's be better with that stuff. Black Sabre Jr. at underscore Black Sabre Jr. He says, wrestling fans love saying WWE wasted so-and-so. They never got the right opportunity. As the 90-day non-compete starts to expire, who's most likely the recent cut to prove that true? He says his money is on Rusev. Well, the Rusev situation is interesting. He said, and Rusev trolls people online all the time. He said on his Twitch stream, he's retired from wrestling and he's going to be a Twitch streamer going forward. I don't think that's true. I think this guy is going to wind up in AEW. I also think he's going to wrestle for New Japan. Eventually, when people from America are Americans or a talent that lives in America is able to travel again and get into Japan. So uh, was Rusev undervalued and underused or didn't get the right opportunity? No, I don't think so. You know, could he have been a WWE champion? Yes. If WWE was booking to its pinnacle of potential booking, or maybe Rusev was an NXT, let's say, yes, he could have been a world champion. But I think really in WWE... His ceiling was a really strong, high-level mid-carder, low-level main eventer who contends for titles. 
and is consistently featured on TV in major storylines. He's a great wrestler. He's very funny in real life. As a heel, it got kind of boring and monotonous. And even as a face, you know, people loved Rusev Day, but there were really no levels to that. I like him much more as himself. His real life personality, he's funny, he's off the wall a little bit, he's a good dude. But I wouldn't say he was not given opportunities in WWE. He got a lot of opportunities. He faced John Cena in huge matches. He had title opportunities. He he was a champion, multi-time champion. Um, so could they have done better with him? Yes. The person who never got an opportunity in WWE is EC3. Literally, he had like two TV matches. The crowd booed him when they were supposed to cheer him against Dean Ambrose, now John Moxley, and Vince gave up completely on the guy. EC3 could have been a star on the main roster. He could have been a main eventer. He could have been a world champion. That's how good he is on the mic. He's not great in the ring. He's great on the mic. And they did not use him at all. So the answer is EC3. I just don't know how much he's going to be able to show it in Impact, especially considering the way Impact is right now without fans in attendance. Adam X Parsons, at Adam X Parsons, he says, do you see much, if any, potential in the Undisputed Era having a baby face turn a la DX? in May, 1998, or is UE a heel faction through and through? I definitely think they can be faces. You have Kyle O'Reilly, who's really funny. Roderick Strong can be a goody two-shoes type of good guy. They can do fun stuff with him. Adam Cole is, has the Shawn Michaels charisma. I know people hate the comparison, but he does. Charism- char- charismatically, I don't even know if that's a word, uh, he has that Shawn Michaels it factor. You can definitely make them faces. Should they be? No, they should debut as heels on the WWE main roster. If they stay in NXT, I guess that could be an interesting turn for them if they do it right. But I don't really know who they'd be going against, which heels they'd be battling against in that point. So no, I think they're heels primarily, but yes, I do think they can face turn really at any time. Better off the one Raw or SmackDown for them to do that. Tristan Atalano at Atalano underscore Tristan. Do you think NXT can do something similar to what AEW is doing in terms of booking the TNT title? Honestly, I think those open challenges where they bring in indie talent is some of the best stuff week to week in wrestling. It exposes new, interesting, and different talent to the audience. So I've already spoken about the TNT title extensively here. If you're going to bring in an Eddie Kingston, it's going to work. If you're going to give a title opportunity to a Sunny Kiss, it's going to work. But have storylines behind it. Don't just hotshot it for no good reason. So I think the NXT championship or the North American championship in NXT, I should say, could and should be defended more frequently on television. It should be a situation where a lot of wrestlers who maybe don't get chances, a lot of the guys who are in these qualifying matches do get chances at the title. I think that's the best possible booking, but I still want storylines. I don't just want North American championship open challenge new person fighting for the title each week. That to me gets boring. I kind of want to see feuds and storylines develop. And NXT, just like with AEW, AEW has way more people than NXT, by the way. But NXT has plenty of people where they can develop storylines and they can defend the title once every three weeks on TV and then once a quarter or however many months at a time at a takeover. So that is my take on NXT and AEW Dynamite this week. For those of you who believe I am too negative towards AEW. This week, you probably got um, justified in your criticisms, but most weeks, 
You guys need to remember, I'm very positive about the AEW product, just as I am with NXT. I love usually what AEW delivers. The last two weeks prior to this one, I thought AEW did an absolutely tremendous job. Last week in particular, it was truly a great show. But this week, I could not have been more disappointed in those first 90 minutes. We will see where the ratings stand when those come out again later on Thursday. I do expect AEW to win again. I don't necessarily think it will be as dramatic as it was a week ago. But if it is, it'll be interesting to see if that all stands next week when NXT has a pretty loaded show scheduled and AEW is really banking on August 12th to be its next big show. Don't forget to follow Getting Over on Twitter at Getting Overcast. If you want to follow me personally, you can do so at Silverstein Adam. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Do me a favor. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the shows. Drop us a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the podcast. There's a long weekend coming up. Plenty more for you guys to do. We will be back Tuesday with another edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, talking everything that went down in WWE between SmackDown and Raw. I'm going to stay away from the previews. This week, SmackDown does have some interesting things announced. We're going to let you go ahead and watch it. This has been a long edition of our Thursday show. So the Silver King is saying goodbye. Hell, let's get Savage back. Elizabeth, come on out oh, oh. We got something going that's oh, really big. Oh, yeah. Look in the video scope right now and tell them about Macho Madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah, we into the twilight zone. Yeah, and how Hogan's got no chance, does he? No. Does anybody have a chance against the Macho Man? No. No. And where are the greatest wrestler, past, present, and future that ever lived? Why? Okay, say goodbye. Say goodbye. Okay, get out of here. That's a little rough, Randy. Yeah, but it is rough. Yeah, wrestling is a rough sport. And I am the roughest one in the sport. I am the number one wrestler in the world today. I will. I thank you, Randy Savage. And thank you all for listening. See you Tuesday. Bye for now.